Welcome to Friends with Mental Health Benefits. I'm Mara Lighty. And I'm Naomi Hirabayashi. And we are the founders of Shine, the inclusive mental health company built for all of us because we believe that everyone deserves to feel support and to live well. On this podcast, we're going to highlight the untold mental health stories of founders and leaders. And today we're joined by the amazing Jen Fisher, who is the Chief Wellbeing Officer at Deloitte, author of Work Better Together, host of the Work Well podcast, and a self-described human-centered workplace trailblazer. And Jen, we've been in each other's orbit for a while now. Mar and I were reflecting this morning on when we first saw that you were giving us love on social, which we really appreciated and the team was so excited about. And uh, we're always just blown away by your title and your innovation and in terms of all the work that you're doing. And we've just always appreciated your support. And then we officially met a year ago on your podcast, Work Well. Um, so it's really just an honor to have you here. It's clear that you are someone that is so passionate about making sure employees feel really seen and supported at work as their whole selves. So we just want to say we're so excited to have you here today. So honored to share your expertise and advice with our community. And thank you for being with us. Absolutely. It's great to be on the show. And I, I honestly feel the same way about the two of you and being you know trailblazers. And I am just so impressed with what you've done. Um, and the community that you've created and built. And uh, so I think there's mutual admiration, mutual love to go around here. That means a lot. It was, it was, this is a really nice way to start the morning um, in terms of just a lot of shared, a shared love and alignment on kind of how we see the world. So we wanted to jump in with our, our first question. And this is a question that Mar and I tried to start all of our check-ins with which is how are you really doing? <laughs> and um, before you start, so if it's helpful, something we do as a team when we also check in with each other as a team or individually that can help answer this and get grounded uh, if this is something you want to do is little picture, big picture. So little picture is how are you feeling in this moment? And then big picture is how are you feeling overall? Yeah, so I love that. So so little picture, I'm feeling great because I'm here with the two of you and mm. I'm excited about this conversation. And big picture, I'm doing okay. Um, you know, it's been a difficult several months for my family and I. My father passed away unexpectedly at the end of October. Mm. My mother has Alzheimer's and he was her primary caregiver. So mm. it's been a rough <laughs> and challenging several months. And so I'm doing okay um, in terms of big picture. Thank you for sharing that, Jen. And I think um, something that has maybe come from this really hard time is that grief has been such a present part of the last two years, both grief in terms of what's happening in the world and grief with what people have experienced. And um, there's always the behind the scenes things that are happening that we don't always, we don't always share or speak to and just appreciate you letting us in on that. And also um, just sending you love can only imagine, you know, the day to day and just the emotional management of all of that. And so just, sending you love and and hope you're finding ways to take care yeah, of all of that. I am. And I, I mean, it's, um, <laughs> I think elder care was something that I always appreciated, mm. you know, when other people were, are going through it or kind of struggling with it. Um, but it is, I think, one of those things that you don't know until you know. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, like most things in my story, and we'll probably get to that, um, 
I, I know that I will get to a point where, um, you know, I've been able to, you know, work through the grief and the challenges. Um, but I do think that elder care is something that um, needs to be talked about more and needs to be focused on more, especially in the workplace mm. um, and the burden. I think we've come a long way with child care. We still have work to do. Absolutely. Right. Um, but certainly with elder care, um, I know that my eyes have been opened in terms of you know, just the, the mental and emotional and physical toll that it can take on someone. So um, probably this conversation came exactly at the right time that it needed to, because I think that's the way the universe works sometimes. Yeah. And that's, that's totally right. And, you know, just reiterating, just appreciate your vulnerability and um, just normalizing, sharing, being, you know, not on the other side always, you know, of, of things, but, but working through and feeling like, you know, you have the tools and there's a process, but mm-hmm. honoring that that is a process, I think is probably, there's so many people listening that, that probably need to hear that. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned your, your story and your journey and the amazing career success you've had. And now as chief well-being officer at Deloitte, a role that you created for yourself after doing many different roles and, you know, being at Deloitte for 20 years, mm-hmm. um, is so impressive. And I think what often people don't see or hear is is kind of like the behind the scenes like what led to that what was happening for you um in your mental health journey yeah absolutely um and my mental health journey is a huge part of the reason that I'm the chief well-being officer at Deloitte and Mm -hmm. so about uh seven years ago now I really found myself in a complete state of burnout um you know and I, I think it's important that First of all, we recognize seven years ago, we weren't talking about burnout in the workplace um, the way that we are now. But I also think it's important to, um, you know, I'm a little worried that right now it's fantastic that we're talking about it more. But I also think that we need to be a little bit careful about what burnout truly is, Mm. Um, you know, because burnout is in, in, in my story. Um, you know, I I could, you know, I was alive, I could open, you know, I I could get out of bed, but I couldn't engage in life or work in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And not only could I not engage in life and work, I, I didn't have the energy or the desire or, you know, I, I just didn't care. Right. You kind of get to a point where, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of feel like hopeless and, and you, and you lose all ability to kind of care about what's going on around you. Um, and, and I think to kind of juxtapose that to what is going on today with the workforce, no doubt there are people that are burnt out, but I actually see what's going on with our workforce today, not as burnout, absolutely tired, exhausted, overwhelmed, Mm. fed up, but there's a ton of energy around it. There's a ton of energy around changing the way that we work for the better. Mm. And when I think about burnout, it's rock bottom. Like you don't have the energy or the desire to change anything. You just want the world to go away. (laughs) And so that's where I was seven years ago. Um, I, you know, in terms of my own mental health, I did seek support. I went to therapy. I was diagnosed with um, depression and anxiety. I still live with pretty significant anxiety today. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, interesting because when I talk about it openly, and I do, so much of the re- reaction is like, "Wow, you like you struggle with your mental health. You seem so 
you know, happy and cheerful Mm -hmm. and energetic and you're so successful. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You can be all of those things (laughs) and struggle with your mental health. And so I, you know, when I, when I was in burnout, I, I did, it kind of forced me. I had to take time off from work um, because I had let it go. I had denied it. I had basically processed it as failure Mm -hmm. because I didn't know what was going on. Mm -hmm. And we weren't talking about these things in the workplace. And so I was like, okay, well, there must be something wrong with me. So let me just continue to push through and continue to power through until my body and my brain was like, all right, if you're not going to do something about it, we're going to do something about it for you. And um, I, I was forced to take a leave of absence, really focus on my mental health, but also my physical health. Um, and more importantly, I think redefine the role that work played in my life. And I think that that's really, really important for people. And I think a lot of people are rethinking that now. And that's so much of what the great resignation is all about. Um, And so in doing that for myself, I became very passionate about wanting to help others, in particular, not get to where I got for them to realize that, you know, struggling in this way is normal. It's human. (laughs) And, you know, if it doesn't happen to you, it certainly might happen to somebody that you know, somebody that you care about, somebody that you love, somebody that you work with, right? We're all, we all know someone. And so it impacts us all in different ways. And so I wanted to help people, you know, recognize those signs and also recognize that they weren't alone because I felt really, really alone. Um, and so I was actually going to resign from Deloitte. I went back to my leader, um, who was incredibly, um, compassionate and emotionally intelligent leader who had given me the time and space to, to figure these things out. And I told her that I wanted to resign because I wanted to, you know, focus on a career that allowed me to help people, um, you know, discover well-being in their life. And, and she was the one more so than me that actually had the vision to say, you're not going anywhere, (laughs) you know, um, put together a business case, because if you need this, then so many other people, you know, need this as well. And so that is what really kind of started me on the journey of putting together a business case and, you know, bringing it to our leadership and, um, you know, asking them truly to just give me, you know, the opportunity to see if I could bring this to life inside of Deloitte. And they did. And, you know, I think the the deal at the time was, you know, give me a chance. And if it doesn't work, I'll leave. So there's no risk to you. Um, I'm still here seven and a half years later. So, (laughs) so I think it's going pretty well. (laughs) Wow. And what was that like for you? You know, you described going in to talk to your manager and, you know, what I assume is something maybe you hadn't talked to her or, or him about before. What was that like? going in and, and disclosing something that felt really personal. Um, and you know, you had sounded like you had made a decision as well. So it's, you know, sounds like a, a big conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was definitely, you know, it was definitely scary. Um, but I think, you know, also going through what I went through at the time that I had to go in and have that conversation, I was pretty, I was in a good place. I was pretty mm-hmm. grounded in terms of, you know, what I what I wanted and and what I needed and where my passions and kind of purpose. Um, I had I had, I had done all of that work 
and it's a lot of work. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, of course, you know, it's scary. I, I also think, you know, I kept in touch with her, you know, um, throughout my leave of absence. And so she was very aware of kind of what was going on with me. And I, I think I really, you know, just got lucky, right? Because I, I, you know, fell in the hands of having a leader that, you know, had these, you know, these things that we tend to call soft skills, but I think they're actually the hard skills, right? Um, she had the compassion, she had the empathy. And I think it was probably because of, you know, some of the things in her own life that she had experienced and gone through. Um, but she was also the kind of leader that, you know, if she saw potential in you in any way, um, she invested in you. And so I think, it, that made it easier, certainly. Um, but it it's a difficult conversation, you know, all around. I think, you know, the 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 probably the scariest moment was was a couple years later, um, when when she and I actually wrote a Harvard Business Review article together to talk about mm -hmm. how leaders can support mental health in the workplace and share our story together. And it got published in, in Harvard Business Review. And the morning that it got published, like you know, everybody on my team was super excited. And I had this like, holy crap moment. Like, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> I basically have just come out to the whole world and mm. told them that I struggled with my mental health. And I was like, can we, mm. can we call Harvard Business Review? Can you tell them to take it down? <laughs> take it down. <laughs> yeah. The vulnerability hangover is Brene Brown called. I, I was just yeah. thinking that. Yeah. 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 Honestly, the outpouring of support from people that I'd never met in my life that just thanked me yeah. for sharing my story and, and and, you know, she had kind of the same experience, right? And so I think those are the types of things that reconfirm to me that even though it's hard to talk about these things, it's hard to ask for what you need. It's hard to be vulnerable and share with others when you don't know what the response is going to be. I guess I've learned to kind of stop worrying about what others think mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. and, and focusing more on, on, you know, on what my needs are. Cause that is what allows me ultimately to be a, you know, a better leader, a better partner, a better, you know, daughter, all the roles that we play in our life, you know? And I think we've been, we've been told in some ways that doing that is selfish and it's not. Um, and in my own experience, you know, when I'm not focused on my own needs is when I show up, when I truly show up at my worst. Yeah. Um, and it becomes very clear, even even when it's scary, after you practice it for a while, it becomes kind of very clear when you're not taking care of yourself. It's very easy to kind of slip back into some of those old ways and those old, old habits, especially for me, because I struggle with anxiety, right? And so if I, right. you know, let the anxiety take over, um, you know, I definitely, <laughs> I'm definitely not the best person to be around. Let's just say it that way. <laughs> it's, it's so clear too, Jen. I mean, there's so much that you just said that I just, I think could be mantra cards. I I, I'm writing them down as she's saying that. I, I totally yeah, agree. No, I know. And I, a couple of things that come to mind are I love how much you, you know yourself and just that idea of it's so human in so many ways to obviously be thinking about what other people are thinking, but really knowing yourself and making decisions based on that versus the validation of others is I think one of the most beautiful life lessons. If you can learn it, you know, as early as possible, it just, it takes time. And then I remember on our last podcast, that quote that you had around, why do we call 
compassion and empathy and collaboration with other soft skills, there's nothing harder and nothing more important in the workplace. And I've held on to that so much um, because I, I definitely think it's challenging and kind of flipping on its head, these old school, you know, toxic narratives around leadership. I want to, I think a lot of what you just spoke to is around stigma. You know, there's still so much work to be done, but I know something from Mar and I that we've been really focused on since we started Shine is destigmatizing these conversations around mental health, particularly in the workplace. And there's the self-stigma of how you judge yourself. There's also the public stigma of how do we view people who are quote unquote struggling versus not struggling and how important it is for leadership to destigmatize from the top because that's where you really see change. Can you share a little bit more about, you know, that perception of, okay, these are the people that struggle. These are the people that don't, you know, when you've responded to people around that feedback of, wait, you, you struggle, you know, how, how can we help break that in the day to day? What advice would you give to people to maybe challenge our perceptions around what it means to be really human, which is, which is the, the day to day struggle of trying to navigate your mental health with, you know, your, your life. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, I mean, I think, you know, for me, um, it is about, you know, sharing my story and encouraging others to do the same. I mean, everybody's going to have a different comfort level around these things, and that's perfectly okay. Um, But, you know, if you do have a story, whether it's, you know, you that has struggled with your mental health or someone in your family, I think the more that we can kind of talk openly and the more honestly the more leaders that come forward, because <laughs> mm-hmm. leaders are human too, right? We often kind of put them on a pedestal or perhaps they even put themselves on a pedestal, right? And in, in their own minds that right. you know they, they can't or they shouldn't falter in some way. But leaders are human too. And you know, I've learned in my own journey that, you know, that that sharing that and being vulnerable and being real and even as something as simple as telling my team, like, I'm in a bad mood today. I'm having a crappy day, <laughs> you know, and kind of letting them know where I'm at because that gives them permission to also do the same. Right. And like, it's, it's okay that you're having a crappy day. Tomorrow's another day and, you know, um, and, and we'll kind of see how it goes. And so I think it's not just about the big moments, right. Mm-hmm. It's not just about like, you know, my big burnout story or, you know, that it's kind of in those small moments to that, that, you know, one-on-one or as a team to like, just be really open and vulnerable. Like, you know, I mentioned, I, you know, we've been, you know, my, we lost my dad, you know, my mom with Alzheimer's, it's, it's really, it's hard, you know, and I've, you know, I've been incredibly open with my team and, you know, they've said to me on a number of occasions that, you know, my willingness to be, open and vulnerable in that way has also allowed them to be open and vulnerable that way. And so Mm. I think that there are a lot of things that leaders can help do at an organizational level to help, you know, remove big stigma. But I I also think that it's equally as powerful and perhaps even more powerful um, at the team level to say, you know, if, if you're struggling or, you know, to share a bit about yourself that gives people that permission that if they're struggling, that they can you know, that they can come to you, you know, and, and seek the help that or ask for your help to, to get the help that they need. Um, and so I think it's, you know, for me, it's just, you know, we, we all need to kind of be a little bit more human about those yeah. things. And 
Um, I, I don't think it's o- I don't think it's overly complicated, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just I mean, it, it's really just kind of we're all human and and we all and we all struggle and I think we need to get better at admitting admitting that um, and and being okay with it. That's yeah. so beautifully said. And what an opportunity too for leaders! Like, what an opportunity mm-hmm. to to step up. I think that. Um, often when we think about like being better leaders, it is just rooted in this really like toxic masculine culture of, you know, going bigger or working harder or being more stern or more firm. And, um, to, you know, your beautiful points, I think just the opportunity we have in this moment where so much, um, has been done, you know, even just through this pandemic and destigmatizing this topic of mental health and being able to talk more openly about it. It just, you know, strikes me as just such a huge moment for leaders to just really listen and pay attention to, as you said, it's not actually, um, a new thing to do. It's a thing to undo, you know, it's something yeah. for us to just Absolutely. take those, like the labels of like, this is what a leader means. I have to be strong. I can't, I can't cry. I can't show, you know, my, my pain or my struggle and just slowly work to undo that because it's, you know, on one hand it can be incredibly harmful. And on the flip side, as you said, I'm sure your team has been in it with you and, and not only have they gotten the benefits, I hope that, you know, you've also gotten the benefits of feeling like you as a leader can be your full self and get that support at work. Yeah. And, and I I mean, I think the other thing I would say too about that is, um, if you create that space and if you are vulnerable, the opportunity for you to help someone mm. before it becomes a crisis just goes up exponentially, right? If they feel comfortable to come to you, you know, in the early days of something, I feel off, something's not right, I'm struggling, I need help, um, you know, and instead of them, you know, hiding it and letting it persist, to when it becomes a crisis, not just in their life, but it, you know, it kind of starts to impact their work, which then impacts the team, which then impacts the organization, right? And so I think that being vulnerable and creating that space for people as a, you know, as a leader and even as a teammate, right? You don't have to be, I think all of us are leaders, right? I, you know, <laughs> but even as a colleague or a teammate, you don't have to be a designated leader to create this right. space for people. Um, and, you know, catching these things early can make so much difference in someone's life. And, you know, the ripple effect of that is is huge and really, really powerful. Yeah. And you mentioned someone's life because I think oftentimes traditionally or historically in business, when someone um, has, let's quote unquote, a personal issue, which is just a funny thing, because it's like, you know, for humans, um, it's, you know, I think a lot of leaders go to like, well, how is this going to affect their work? And how can I help them so that they can be better for work? Right. But as you mentioned, the ripple effects on people's lives of having somebody there, it reminds me of um, something I saw you wrote recently was that now is the time to rethink work-life integration as life-work integration. Yeah. And I read that and I was like, damn, you know, it's so <laughs> simple. The word, you know, just that short phrase. I, I would love for you to expand more on that. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it actually came about um, by a colleague that challenged me on work-life integration. And so I think for me, you know, the journey was, we always talked about work-life balance and we still do. I mean, it's still common language and, in, in, you know, especially in kind of work and society. And, 
um, <laughs> being the, the recovering perfectionist that I am, um, you know, balance didn't work for me because I was like, mm. okay, how do I get 50-50? You know, how do I give 50% of myself to life and 50% of myself to work? And some people are probably thinking like, that's totally ridiculous. But for me, like words are really important and words really matter. And so work-life balance never worked for me because I just felt like I was failing all the time. Mm. I was like, wow, okay. It's, you know, it's like out of balance. But the truth is, it's a rhythm over time, right? I mean, sometimes you're going to give more to work and sometimes you're going to give more to life and that's okay. It's just kind of being aware of what those moments are. And so, um, you know, that kind of led into the journey of, of work-life integration, especially as, you know, even pre-pandemic, you know, technology is so ever-present in our lives. It does allow us to work from anywhere, which is great, but it's also awful because it allows us to work from anywhere. Mm, I feel that. <laughs> you know, yeah. and so work-life integration was like, you know, how do you integrate these things into your life in a way that actually works for you? Um, and then I had a colleague several months ago kind of challenge me to say like, well, why would you put work first? Like, why don't you mm. put life first? And as I, you know, in the moment I was like, you know, that that's interesting. I, I need to think about it. I don't know. I mean, I think we just put work first because, you know, we were following the trend of like work-life balance, right? But then as I started to think about it, I was like, okay, well, is it really, you know, having work first continues the dialogue of we put work first and then we need to figure out how to integrate the remaining pieces of our life into our work or around our work, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to if we put life first, then we're integrating work into an overall thriving life. And that's the appropriate place for work, right? There's nothing wrong with work or working hard or loving what you do. All of those things are great, but it shouldn't take, you know, like work shouldn't take the place of life. It should be integrated as an overall part of your thriving life. And so that was the reason for the shift. But again, it was, you know, somebody that came to me that was kind of like, you know, I don't know why you always put work first. And I was like, mm. yeah, really good point. Let me get back to you on that. <laughs> yeah, I'll go back. Uh, it's like it's in us that, um, you know, there's so many uh, benefits of a capitalistic society and we all are actively a part of that. And it's also there, there are so many things inherently broken about our capitalistic system. And I think the idea that it's just rooted in us to lead with work is just something I never thought about. It's such yeah. a fantastic point. And I love what you said about integration and the idea of it being a rhythm. I think, I think that's going to help so many people because, you know, that's something Naomi and I talk about all the time. And we have a friend, um, Tiffany Dufu, who wrote a book, Drop the Ball, that talks mm -hmm. about this and about just the fact that we can't center everything around this one thing and then think of all of these other pieces of our life as additive and and you know we're just going to do it all but we have to be able to kind of work within a rhythm um for our lives and starting with what fulfills us and what what brings us the most joy and makes us feel cared for so just yeah i just really appreciate that perspective i'm definitely taking that with me <laughs> yeah Let's take a quick break and hand it over to Joy, the host of The Daily Shine, to share more on how you can take better care at work. You're not alone if you're feeling anxious or stressed as we all collectively process crisis, uncertainty, and navigating the changes to the workplace. Your feelings are valid. That's why the team behind Shine's award-winning app created Shine at Work an employee well-being program rooted in culturally competent care. 
Shine at Work helps create psychologically safe workplaces with programming and content rooted in inclusivity. When you bring Shine at Work to your workplace or school, your team will get identity-based mental health programming led by representative experts to support their well-being and create a culture of belonging. Head to theshineapp.com benefits to learn more about how you can bring Shine at Work to your workplace. That's theshineapp.com slash benefits to learn more. I think there's a lot that you're saying, Jen, that we talk about at Shine as a team. Mar and I talked a lot about, particularly in the first year that we started Shine, which is unlearning, you know, unlearning these old systems that don't serve the full self. I think particularly for any marginalized identity, being a woman, a person of color, a woman of color, um, whatever experience might make you feel that you exist on the outside to some degree in the traditional like workplace grind. Mm -hmm. Um, It just made me think about for people that are uh, listening that, you know, I I know the life work integration, I'm going to sit with that (laughs) and they're struggling where to start and maybe they don't have the most supportive boss or most supportive culture. Like what's one thing that they could do, you know, today to start to, flex that muscle of life work integration and really honor their needs first and foremost as, as a human before, you know, a worker. Yeah. I love that question. It's so important. Um, and, and we dive pretty deep into this and in, in, in the book work better together that I wrote with my colleague, but in all the research that we did, um, for that book, you know, what, what we kept coming across and, and perhaps it's not that surprising. Um, but we looked at, you know, well-being, from an organizational level, a team level, an individual level. And and that's kind of what we studied and what we wrote about. And what we found was that um, even within a organization that doesn't prioritize workforce well-being, there can be high-performing, very well teams. Mm -hmm. And that the team is actually the group of people you know that you work with most closely day in day out that have the biggest impact on your health and well-being you know kind of on a day-to-day basis and so we call those microcultures so the microculture mm-hmm. within a team and so what i you know recommend people doing is first and foremost all of us have to you have to define your well-being non-negotiables you just have to <laughs> um because it, you know if you don't you know, you're, you're never going to be able to set boundaries or, you know, or kind of hold to what really matters most to you. And, and so you have to get really clear in that for yourself. But in the workplace, we all have more control than we believe we do. And where that control sits is on the teams that we sit on. So even if you work for a leader or a manager that you don't believe, you know, cares about your well-being get together with a couple of your colleagues and Mm. say hey i've been thinking about this i want to do this i want to try it is this something you're struggling with um what do you think of these ideas and come together as two or three people and try it out um and and then i would suggest going to your leader or manager and saying hey this is something really important to us you know, you're not dumping it as a problem on the lap of the manager or the leader, but you're bringing it to them as a solution. Hey, this is important to us. And we'd like to try this as a team. 
you know, I think I go back to, you know, leaders are human too, right? Most leaders, <laughs> you know, whether they admit it or not, they struggle, right? And so, yeah. and so they might be struggling. It might not be that they don't care about your health and well-being. Yeah. I would imagine that most leaders actually do. Most leaders that I know aren't inherently bad people, <laughs> right? And right. and and they do care about others. Um, it's just that they're probably also dealing with a lot. And so, right. if you can go right. to the leader and say hey, this is important to us and we have a solution or we have a handful of things that we'd like to try as a team, you know, are you okay with that? Is there probably a leader out there somewhere that's going to say no? Absolutely not. Probably, but more times than not, the leader is going to be like, yeah, great idea. Let's try right. it, you know, because you've solved a problem for them or you're helping solve a problem for them. I would say if you have that leader that, you know, says absolutely not, <laughs> we're not doing it then that's probably a time to rethink, like, are you in the right place? Um, because that's pretty toxic. And nobody's health and well-being is worth a job. Um, and so, look, I'm not saying outright resign. You have, to, you have to figure out what works for you and what your needs are in your life. But if you're working in a toxic environment that you don't feel like you have any ability to change and it's significantly impacting you either mentally or physically, you have to find a way to get out. But other than that, what I found and what we found in our research is that we can all make an impact. And we're all, in a, in a lot of ways, we're responsible for the culture that we want to create. Mm -hmm. the, the top leadership, yes, it's incredibly important and can have a huge impact, but it's not everything. Um, and so we need to start acting and behaving and setting our boundaries and communicating. I think the thing about boundaries is we, you know, get upset when we feel like somebody's overrun our boundaries. Nine times out of 10, we have actually haven't clearly communicated what those boundaries are to somebody. And yeah. so we all need to get comfortable and it can be hard. Um, but if we start doing it and we start doing it in a way that's supportive to one another, um, it, as a team, it actually comes a lot easier. That is so beautiful and well said. I think the the remembering our power, remembering our control, you know, it can feel, and, and burnout often comes from feeling mm -hmm. like you don't have any control. Absolutely. You know, and so that's just such a good, the micro cultures and a great um, reminder on where people can start. And also a reminder that a lot of people are good. <laughs> it can feel like, yeah. you know, uh, just right, right. Like most leaders are, and you know, will would jump at the chance of someone to come to them with a solution. Um, it's just having that conversation. So that's such good tactical advice. And um, your reference to work better together uh, leads us into our next question. Mar and I were like, just loved seeing the theme of that, which really focused on the importance of authentic workplace relationships. You know, for us and our story, we started Shine because we were friends who didn't see ourselves represented in the mental health space, but we gave each other the support we needed. And it was fundamental to our workplace mental health, obviously fundamental to starting Shine. Who is your friend with mental health benefits? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I have a lot. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's probably because I'm, I am very open and transparent, um, you know, but the kind of the one that, that certainly sticks out for me is, is the person that I spoke of earlier that, that she used to be my leader, Diana O'Brien. Mm. Um, she was Deloitte's chief marketing officer, um, but is now retired. And, um, you know, she is the one that, I wouldn't be who I am or where I am today if if it wasn't for her. And, mm. you know, she created that space for me. And, you know, it's come full circle, right? Because there are times in her life when now she's been struggling and I've been there to to support her. 
Um, and, you know, she was my leader at the time, but now, you know, I mean, she's one of my closest friends and she certainly is a mentor, even, even in retirement. Um, you know, she's kind of my, my 911 that I call. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, but honestly, I, um, you know, th- there's so many, right? And and I think that that's beautiful because, I mean, I, I have to give props to my team because I am very open and transparent with them and, and vice versa. And so, um, you know, like you said before, it it's not just about me, you know, being vulnerable to create space for them to do the same, but I mean, what I get in return in terms of the incredible amount of support, mm-hmm. um, you know, of them, you know, just making sure, checking in and, you know, saying, you know, Jen, uh, you're the leader, but like, how are you really doing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. And so, you know, I'm not suggesting that, you know, we all need, you know, 25, <laughs> you know, friend with mental health benefits, but <laughs> I, I do think that the more that you are able to be open about it, the more that you will find that there's people to lean on and that people will lean on you. Um, and, and so maybe for some people it's one. Um, but for me, it's kind of a whole community and maybe I just need more support, but the community's there. <laughs> I, I love that the idea of vulnerability is that currency. That's like, yeah, I'm going to give you, you give me that. And, um, and I, I think that is probably a huge reason why you do have that support, right? There's probably for so many people listening, people available to us that we just might not know are available to be that support for us. Um, But, you know, whether it's, you know, we, uh, us taking the first step or um, asking, you know, more thoughtful questions, really opening that, that, um, that dialogue and giving space for vulnerability to be able to find that friend with mental health benefits if you don't have it or to deepen the relationship if you do. Yeah. And, and I think one thing I would say about that is a conversation that I have with people often is, you know, this whole notion of checking in and, asking people how they're really doing, or if you notice that somebody might not be doing well, like how do you approach that conversation? And I think it's normal kind of human instinct to, if we ask somebody that question and they say, wow, thank you for asking, I'm not doing well. Um, You know, I think sometimes the fear of, you know, if somebody opens up and says they're not doing well, the fear of having or wanting or feeling like you need to fix it for them right, keeps right. us from having those conversations. And I would just say, don't let it keep you because the expectation from the other person is not that you're, you can, first of all, you can't mm. fix it for them, right? Mm-hmm. Like just start there. <laughs> it's not your job to fix it for them unless you are a mental health clinician. Um, you, you can help them find help if that's what they need. But most of the time, all of the time, actually, people just want to know that there's someone there, that they are supported, that they're not alone, that they can pick up the phone and and call and just, you know, have a caring ear on the other end. And so I would say if you're a person that has kind of held back from those conversations, don't let the fear of like needing to feel like you need to fix it or not knowing how to fix it mm. hold you back from having those conversations because it's truly not the expectation That's right. that you would fix it. People just want to know that that they have someone to talk mm. to. And hopefully that's freeing for people. Like yeah. we can all just um, relax a little bit in terms of being able to have that conversation. Uh, I know we're just so grateful for this, Jen. So mm. grateful for your time. Um, the only last question or questions we have is rapid fire. Um, let me get ready for this. So prepare yourself. <laughs> Take a sip of that coffee. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned you mentioned your uh, your non-negotiables, your mental health non-negotiables. For you, what's one you know morning non-negotiable for you? 
one morning non-negotiable, a walk with my puppy. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Milk before or after the cereal is poured in. It's really important. <laughs> Ooh, after. <laughs> right answer. Um, favorite <laughs> favorite self-care product? Oh, Epsom salt for my bath. Oh, I need to get into that. That's great. Um uh, this is a this is a maybe tough one to think about, but maybe something comes to mind. Best thing your therapist ever told you? Best thing my therapist ever told me it was to stop worrying about what other people think of me. Mm, love that. Last question: Where do you feel safest? Where do I feel safest? Um, in my bed because I love to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to sleep. Oh, Naomi yes. and I were just talking about that this morning. <laughs> yeah, I just have like the most comfortable, like cush, like you know, like my bed is like heaven. So, <laughs> oh, awesome. but no, I mean also around friends. I mean, just in a mm. you know good group of friends, it just feels like a warm hug. Mm. Love that. Well, thank you again, Jen, so much for being with us today. We, I cannot tell you the amount of things that I wrote down that I am going to hold on to for myself. And I think just, you know, it's, it really feels full circle to be able yeah. to spend time with you in this way after getting to chat with you a year ago. And I remember leaving that conversation and thinking, Naomi and I were both like, how do we, how do we spend more time with her? Like what's, how do we like <laughs> engage with her more? Because you just, I think really embody so much of, of what you just spoke to, which is real human who's you know kind and uh, vulnerable and compassionate and really modeling that on a leadership level which as leaders in our space like it's something we really really value and um are you know just look up to so just really really appreciate you being here thank you jen this was such a joy a great way to spend the morning thank you so much thank you Friends with Mental Health Benefits is hosted by me, Mara Lighty, and me, Naomi Hirabayashi, and is brought to you by Shine at Work, an employee well-being program rooted in culturally competent care created by the team behind the award-winning Shine app. Learn more about Shine at Work by heading to theshineapp.com slash benefits. If you liked today's episode, leave a rating and review and look out for a brand new episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, you can download the Shine app in the App Store or on Google Play. And follow us on social media at the Shine app. This podcast is produced by Asaf Gadron and Danera James, with strategic and editorial support from Martha Tessima and Haley Goldberg, and music by Asaf Gadron. Take care, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>